When the moon hangs high in the midnight sky Like a cat's claw scratching down And the wolves, they do howl For they smell something foul Mr. Whiskers has come to town He trundles out of the dark Looking for a lark You better pray you don't catch his eye For when he is done having his fun You just might wish you could die <laughs> Your 2020 is going well. I just saw the one day I cannot celebrate my unbirthday pass me by, and I had a blast. Uh, of course, I only just recovered, and it's, well, um, ten days later. What can I say? That's how I roll. Who am I? Well, for the rare cat that's tuning in for the first time, I'm your host. Mr. Whiskers, the Mad Catter, and I'm here to welcome you to another episode of Twisted Tea Time. It's been an odd season three, to be sure. I interrupted my telling of the dream quest of Unknown Kadath in order to attempt a 31 Days of Halloween, but I only made it to day 25. Such is life and all that. Then, there was a brief holiday episode, followed by your standard holiday chaos, some celebration, some concern that my host body's contract at their day job wouldn't renew, followed by some more celebration, and, and now here we are. Before we begin, I'd like to give a shout-out to my Patreon backers. So far, there's only three of you, but those contributions have saved my tail more times than I can bat at a ball of yarn. So, without any particular order, save what I wrote them down as, uh, thank you, Bosnick Fangirl, Dawn, and of course, Robert Stone Lewis. If you'd like a shout-out, a, a chance to get a little merch, or get MP3s of the longer stories uninterrupted by intros, outros, or me selling myself, then pounce on over to patreon.com forward slash the Mad Catter and sign up for as little as one dollar a month. Every little bit helps. If you wish to support the show in other ways, well, write up a positive review. Or perhaps share your favorite episodes to social media. Or if you're listening to this on YouTube, then like and subscribe. Though I know I'm nowhere near caught up in my releasing the podcast there, but uh, who knows? Maybe soon. Now, I have a few more things to talk about, but that can be saved for the end of the show. I've wasted enough time as is. When last we left off, Carter, ever pursuing his quest to find unknown Kadath, had been snatched from the literal face of Mount Negranic by the dreaded and silent night gods, who hauled him away to fates unknown. Well, unknown until today, that is. 
So without further ado, I present unto you The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath by H.P. Lovecraft Part 4 They bore him breathless into that cliffside cavern and through monstrous labyrinths beyond. When he struggled, as at first he did by instinct, they tickled him with deliberation. They made no sound at all themselves, and even their membranous wings were silent. They were frightfully cold and damp and slippery, and their paws needed one detestably. Soon, they were plunging hideously downward through inconceivable abysses in a whirling, giddying, sickening rush of dank, tomb-like air, and Carter felt they were shooting into the ultimate vortex of shrieking and demonic madness. He screamed again and again, but whenever he did so, the black paws tickled him with greater subtlety. Then, he saw a sort of gray phosphorescence about, and guessed they were coming even to that inner world of subterrene horror of which dim legends tell, and which is litten only by the pale deathfire wherewith reeks the ghoulish air and the primal mists of the pits at Earth's core. At last, Far below him he saw faint lines of gray and ominous pinnacles, which he knew must be the fabled peaks of Throck. Awful and sinister they stand in the haunted disk of sunless and eternal depths, higher than man may reckon, and guarding terrible valleys where the doles crawl and burrow nastily. But Carter preferred to look at them than at his captors, which were indeed shocking and uncouth black things with smooth, oily, whale-like surfaces, unpleasant horns that curved inward toward each other, bat wings whose beating made no sound, ugly prehensile paws and barbed tails that lashed needlessly and disquietingly. And worst of all, they never spoke or laughed and never smiled because they had no faces at all to smile with, but only a suggestive blankness where a face ought to be. All they ever did was clutch and fly and tickle. That was the way of night gaunts. As the band flew lower, the peaks of Throck rose gray and towering on the sides, and one saw clearly that nothing lived on that austere and impressive granite of the endless twilight. At still lower levels, the death fires in the air gave out, and one met only the primal blackness of the void save aloft where the thin peaks stood out goblin-like. Soon the peaks were very far away, and nothing about but great rushing winds with the dankness of nethermost grottos in them. Then, in the end, 
the night gaunts landed on a floor of unseen things, which felt like layers of bones, and left Carter all alone in that black valley. To bring him thither was the duty of the night gaunts that guard Negranic, and this done, they flapped away silently. When Carter tried to trace their flight, he found he could not, since even the peaks of Throck had faded out of sight. There was nothing anywhere but blackness and horror and silence and bones. Now Carter knew from a certain source that he was in the Vale of Panoth, where crawl and burrow the enormous doles, but he did not know what to expect, because no one has ever seen a dole, or even guessed what such a thing may be like. Doles are known only by dim rumor, from the rustling they make amongst mountains of bones and the slimy touch they have when they wriggle past one. They cannot be seen because they creep only in the dark. Carter did not wish to meet a dole, so listened intently for any sound in the unknown depths of bones about him. Even in this fearsome place, he had a plan and an objective, for whispers of Pnoth were not unknown to one with whom he had talked much in the old days. In brief, it seemed fairly likely that this was the spot into which all the ghouls of the waking world cast the refuse of their feastings, and that if he but had good luck, he might stumble upon that mighty crag taller even than Throck's peaks, which marks the edge of their domain. Showers of bones would tell him where to look, and once found, he could call to a ghoul to let down a ladder. For strange to say, he had a very singular link with these terrible creatures. A man he had known in Boston, a painter of strange pictures with a secret studio in an ancient and unhallowed alley near a graveyard, had actually made friends with the ghouls and had taught him to understand the simpler part of their disgusting meeping and glibbering. This man had vanished at last, and Carter was not sure but that he might find him now and use for the first time in dreamland that far-away English of his dim waking life. In any case, he felt he could persuade a ghoul to guide him out of Pnoth, and it would be better to meet a ghoul which one can see than a dole which one cannot see. So Carter walked in the dark and ran when he thought he heard something among the bones underfoot. Once he bumped into a stony slope and knew it must be the base of one of Throck's peaks. Then at last he heard a monstrous rattling and clatter which reached far up in the air and became sure he had come nigh the crag of the ghouls. He was not sure he could be heard from this valley miles below, but realized that the inner world has strange laws. As he pondered, he was struck by a flying bone so heavy that it must have been a skull, and therefore realizing his nearness to the fateful crag he sent up as best he might 
that meeping cry which is the call of the ghoul. Sound travels slowly, so it was some time before he heard an answering glibber, but it came at last, and before long he was told that a rope ladder would be lowered. The wait for this was very tense, since there was no telling what might not have been stirred up among those bones by his shouting. Indeed, it was not long before he actually did hear a vague rustling afar off. As this thoughtfully approached, he became more and more uncomfortable, for he did not wish to move away from the spot where the ladder would come. Finally, the tension grew almost unbearable, and he was about to flee in panic when the thud of something on the newly heaped bones nearby drew his notice from the other sound. It was the ladder, and after a minute of groping, he had it taut in his hands. But the other sound did not cease, and followed him even as he climbed. He had gone fully five feet from the ground when the rattling beneath waxed emphatic, and was a good ten feet up when something swayed the ladder from below. At a height which must have been fifteen or twenty feet, he felt his whole side brushed by a great, slippery length, which grew alternately convex and concave with wriggling, and hereafter he climbed desperately to escape the unendurable nuzzling of that loathsome and overfed dole, whose form no man might see. For hours he climbed with aching and blistered hands, seeing again the grey death-fire and Throck's uncomfortable pinnacles. At last, he discerned above him the projecting edge of the great crag of the ghouls, whose vertical side he could not glimpse, and hours later he saw a curious face peering over it as a gargoyle peers over a parapet of Notre Dame. This almost made him lose his hold through faintness, but a moment later he was himself again, for his vanished friend Richard Pickman had once introduced him to a ghoul, and he knew well their canine faces and slumping forms and unmentionable idiosyncrasies. So he had himself well under control when that hideous thing pulled him out of the dizzy emptiness over the edge of the crag and did not scream at the partly consumed refuse heaped at one side, or at the squatting circles of ghouls who gnawed and watched curiously. He was now on a dim-litten plain, whose sole topographical features were great boulders and the entrances of burrows. The ghouls were in general respectful, even if one did attempt to pinch him while several others eyed his leanness speculatively. Through patient glibbering, he made inquiries regarding his vanished friend, and found he had become a ghoul of some prominence in abysses near the waking world. A greenish, elderly ghoul offered to conduct him to Pikmin's present habitation, so despite a natural loathing, he followed the creature into a capacious burrow, and crawled after him for hours in the blackness of rank mold. They emerged on a dim plain strewn with singular relics of earth. Old gravestones, broken urns, and grotesque fragments of monuments, 
and Carter realized with some emotion that he was probably nearer the waking world than at any other time since he had gone down the 700 steps from the Cavern of Flame to the Gate of Deeper Slumber. There on a tombstone of 1768, stolen from the Granary Burying Ground in Boston, sat a ghoul which was once the artist Richard Upton Pickman. It was naked and rubbery, and had acquired so much of the ghoulish physiognomy that its human origin was already obscure. But it still remembered a little English, and was able to converse with Carter in grunts and monosyllables, helped out now and then by the glibbering of ghouls. When it learned that Carter wished to get to the Enchanted Wood, and from there to the city Selephes in Uwath Nargai, beyond the Tenarian Hills, it seemed rather doubtful. For these ghouls of the waking world do no business in the graveyards of Upper Dreamland, leaving that to the red-footed womps that are spawned in dead cities. And many things intervene betwixt their gulf and the Enchanted Wood, including the terrible kingdom of the Gugs. The Gugs. Hairy and gigantic, once reared stone circles in that wood and made strange sacrifices to the other gods and the crawling chaos, Nyarlanthotep. Until one night an abomination of theirs reached the ears of Earth's gods and they were banished to the caverns below. Only a great trap door of stone with an iron ring connects the abyss of the earth ghouls with the enchanted wood, and this the Gugs are afraid to open because of a curse. That a mortal dreamer could traverse their cavern realm and leave by the door is inconceivable, for mortal dreamers were their former food and they have legends of the toothsomeness of such dreamers, even though banishment has restricted their diet to the ghasts, those repulsive beings which die in the light and which live in the vaults of Zin and leap on long hind legs like kangaroos. So the ghoul that was Pikmin advised Carter either to leave the abyss at Sarkomond that deserted city in the valley below Lang, where black nitrous stairways guarded by winged diorote lions led down from dreamland to the lower gulfs, or to return through a churchyard to the waking world and begin the quest anew down the seventy steps of light slumber to the cavern of flame and the seven hundred steps to the gate of deeper slumber and the enchanted wood. This, however, did not suit the Seeker, for he knew nothing of the way from Lang to Oath Nargai, and was likewise reluctant to awake lest he forget all he had so far gained in this dream. It was disastrous to his quest to forget the august and celestial faces of those seamen from the north who traded onyx in Selephes, and who, being the sons of gods, must point the way to the cold waste and Kadath, where the great ones dwell. After much persuasion, the ghoul consented to guide his guest inside the great wall of the Gug's kingdom. 
there was one chance that Carter might be able to steal through that twilight realm of circular stone towers at an hour when the giants would be all gorged and snoring indoors, and reach the central tower with the sign of Koth upon it, which has the stairs leading up to that stone trap door in the enchanted wood. Pikmin even consented to lend three ghouls to help with the tombstone lever in raising the stone door, for of ghouls the gugs are somewhat afraid, and they often flee from their own colossal graveyards when they see them feasting there. He also advised Carter to disguise as a ghoul himself, shaving the beard he had allowed to grow, for ghouls have none wallowing naked in the mold to get the correct surface, and loping in the usual slumping way with his clothing carried in a bundle as if it were a choice morsel from a tomb. They would reach the city of Gugs, which is coterminous with the whole kingdom, through the proper burrows emerging in a cemetery not far from the stair-containing Tower of Koth. They must beware, however, of a large cave near the cemetery, for this is the mouth of the vaults of Zin, and the vindictive ghasts are always on watch there murderously for those denizens of the upper abyss who hunt and prey on them. The ghasts try to come out when the gugs sleep, and they attack ghouls as readily as gugs, for they cannot discriminate. They are very primitive and eat one another. The Gugs have a sentry at a narrow in the vaults of Zin, but he is often drowsy and is sometimes surprised by a party of ghasts. Though ghasts cannot live in real light, they can endure the grey twilight of the abyss for hours. So at length, Carter crawled through endless burrows with three helpful ghouls bearing the slate gravestone of Colonel Nepamiah Derby, Obit 1719, from the Charter Street burying ground in Salem. When they came again into open twilight, they were in a forest of vast lichened monoliths reaching nearly as high as the eye could see, and forming the modest gravestones of the Gugs. On the right of the hole out of which they wriggled, and seen through aisles of monoliths, was a stupendous vista of cyclopean round towers mounting up illimitable into the grey air of inner earth. This was the great city of the Gugs, whose doorways are thirty feet high. Ghouls come here often, for a buried Gug will feed a community for almost a year and even with the added peril, it is better to burrow for gugs than to bother with the graves of men. Carter now understood the occasional titan bones he had felt beneath him in the Vale of Pnoth. Straight ahead, and just outside the cemetery, rose a sheer perpendicular cliff at whose base an immense and forbidding cavern yawned. This the ghouls told Carter to avoid as much as possible, since it was the entrance to the unhallowed vaults of Zin, where gugs hunt ghasts in the darkness. And truly, that warning was soon well justified, 
For the moment a ghoul began to creep toward the towers to see if the hour of the gug's resting had been rightly timed, there glowed in the gloom of that great cavern's mouth first one pair of yellowish-red eyes, and then another, implying that the gugs were one century less, and that ghasts have indeed an excellent sharpness of smell. So the ghoul returned to the burrow and motioned his companions to be silent. It was best to leave the ghasts to their own devices, and there was a possibility that they might soon withdraw, since they must naturally be rather tired after coping with a gug sentry in the black vaults. After a moment, something about the size of a small horse hopped out into the gray twilight, and Carter turned sick at the aspect of that scabrous and unwholesome beast, whose face is so curiously human despite the absence of a nose, a forehead, and other important particulars. Presently, three other ghasts hopped out to join their fellow and a ghoul glibbered softly at Carter that their absence of battle scars was a bad sign. It proved that they had not fought the Gug sentry at all, but had merely slipped past him as he slept, so that their strength and savagery were still unimpaired and would remain so till they had found and disposed of a victim. It was very unpleasant to see those filthy and disproportioned animals, which soon numbered about fifteen, grubbing about and making their kangaroo leaps in the grey twilight where titan towers and monoliths arose. But it was still more unpleasant when they spoke among themselves in the coughing gutturals of ghasts. And yet, horrible as they were, they were not so horrible as what presently came out of the cave after them with disconcerting suddenness. It was a paw, fully two feet and a half across, and equipped with formidable talons. After it came another paw, and after that a great black furred arm to which both of the paws were attached by short forearms. Then two pink eyes shone, and the head of the awakened Gug sentry, large as a barrel, wobbled into view. The eyes jutted two inches from each side, shaded by bony protuberances overgrown with coarse hairs. But the head was chiefly terrible because of the mouth. That mouth had great yellow fangs and ran from the top to the bottom of the head, opening vertically instead of horizontally. But before the unfortunate Gug could emerge from the cave and rise to his full twenty feet, the vindictive ghasts were upon him. Carter feared for a moment that he would give an alarm and arouse all his kin, till a ghoul softly glibbered that Gugs have no voice, but talk by means of facial expressions. The battle which then ensued was truly a frightful one. From all sides the venomous ghasts rushed feverishly at the creeping Gug, nipping and tearing with their muzzles, and mauling murderously with their hard-pointed hooves. 
All the time, they coughed excitedly, screaming when the great vertical mouth of the gug would occasionally bite into one of their number, so that the noise of the combat would surely have aroused the sleeping city had not the weakening of the sentry begun to transfer the action farther and farther within the cavern. As it was, the tumult soon receded altogether from sight in the blackness, with only occasional evil echoes to mark its continuance. Then, the most alert of the ghouls gave the signal for all to advance, and Carter followed the loping three out of the forest of monoliths and into the dark, noisome streets of that awful city, whose rounded towers of cyclopean stone soared up beyond the sight. Silently, they shambled over that rough rock pavement, hearing with disgust the abominable's muffled snortings from great black doorways which marked the slumber of the Gugs. Apprehensive of the ending of the rest hour, the ghouls set a somewhat rapid pace, but even so the journey was no brief one for distances in that town of giants are on a great scale. At last, however, they came to a somewhat open space before a tower even vaster than the rest, above whose colossal doorway was fixed a monstrous symbol in bas-relief, which made one shudder without knowing its meaning. This was the central tower with the sign of Koth, and those huge stone steps just visible through the dusk within were the beginning of the great flight leading to Upper Dreamland and the Enchanted Wood. There now began a climb of interminable length in utter blackness, made almost impossible by the monstrous size of the steps, which were fashioned for gugs, and were therefore nearly a yard high. Of their number, Carter could form no just estimate, for he soon became so worn out that the tireless and elastic ghouls were forced to aid him. All through the endless climb, there lurked the peril of detection and pursuit. For though no gug dares lift the stone door to the forest because of the Great One's curse, there are no such restraints concerning the tower and the steps and escaped ghasts are often chased even to the very top. So sharp are the ears of Gugs that the bare feet and hands of the climbers might readily be heard when the city awoke, and it would of course take but little time for the striding giants, accustomed from their ghast hunts in the vaults of Zin to seen without light to overtake their smaller and slower quarry on those cyclopean steps. It was very depressing to reflect that the silent pursuing gugs would not be heard at all, but would come very suddenly and shockingly in the dark upon the climbers. Nor could the traditional fear of gugs for ghouls be depended upon in that peculiar place, where the advantage lay so heavily with the gugs. There was also some peril from the furtive and venomous ghasts, which frequently hopped up onto the tower during the sleep hour of the Gugs, 
If the Gugs slept long and the ghasts returned soon from their deed in the cavern, the scent of the climbers might easily be picked up by those loathsome and ill-disposed things, in which case it would almost be better to be eaten by a Gug. Then, after aeons of climbing, there came a cough from the darkness above, and matters assumed a very grave and unexpected turn. It was clear that a ghast, or perhaps even more, had strayed into that tower before the coming of Carter and his guides, and it was equally clear that this peril was very close. After a breathless second, the leading ghoul pushed Carter to the wall and arranged his kinfolk in the best possible way, with the old slate tombstone raised for a crushing blow whenever the enemy might come in sight. Ghouls can see in the dark, so the party was not as badly off as Carter would have been alone. In another moment, the clatter of hooves revealed the downward hopping of at least one beast and the slab-bearing ghouls poised their weapon for a desperate blow. Presently, two yellowish-red eyes flashed into view, and the panting of the ghast became audible above its clattering. As it hopped down to the step above the ghouls, they wielded the ancient gravestone with prodigious force, so that there was only a wheeze and a choking before the victim collapsed in a noxious heap. There seemed to be only this one animal, and after a moment of listening, the ghouls tapped Carter as a signal to proceed again. As before, they were obliged to aid him, and he was glad to leave that place of carnage where the ghast's uncouth remains sprawled invisible in the blackness. At last, the ghouls brought their companion to a halt, and feeling above him, Carter realized that the great stone trap door was reached at last. To open so vast a thing completely was not to be thought of, but the ghouls hoped to get it up just enough to slip the gravestone under as a prop and permit Carter to escape through the crack. They themselves planned to descend again and return through the city of the Gugs, since their elusiveness was great, and they did not know the way overland to Spectral Sarcomond with its lion-guarded gate to the Abyss. Mighty was the straining of those three ghouls at the stone of the door above them, and Carter helped push with as much strength as he had. They judged the edge next to the top of the staircase to be the right one, and to this they bent all the force of their disreputably nourished muscles. After a few moments, a crack of light appeared, and Carter, to whom that task had been instructed, slipped the end of the old gravestone in the aperture. There now ensued a mighty heaving, but progress was very slow and they had, of course, to return to their first position every time they failed to turn the slab and prop the portal open. Suddenly, their desperation was magnified a thousandfold by a sound on the steps below them. It was only the thumping and rattling of the slain ghast's hooved body as it rolled down to lower levels. 
but of all the possible causes of that body's dislodgement and rolling, none was in the least reassuring. Therefore, knowing the ways of Gugs, the ghouls set to with something of a frenzy, and in a surprisingly short time had the door so high that they were able to hold it still whilst Carter turned the slab and left a generous opening. They now helped Carter through, letting him climb up their rubbery shoulders and later guiding his feet as he clutched at the blessed soil of the upper dreamland outside. Another second and they were through themselves, knocking away the gravestone and closing the great trap door while a panting became audible beneath. Because of the Great One's curse, no Gug might ever emerge from that portal. So with a deep relief and sense of repose, Carter lay quietly on the thick, grotesque fungi of the enchanted wood, while his guides squatted near in the manner that ghouls rest. Weird as was that enchanted wood through which he had fared so long ago, it was verily a haven and a delight after those gulfs he had now left behind. There was no living denizen about, for Zoogs shunned the mysterious door in fear, and Carter at once consulted with the ghouls about their future course. To return through the tower they no longer dared, and the waking world did not appeal to them when they learned that they must pass the priests Nasht and Common Thaw in the Cavern of Flame. So, at length, they decided to return through Sarkomond and its gate of the abyss, though of how to get there they knew nothing. Carter recalled that it lies in the valley below Lang, and recalled likewise that he had seen in Dilathleen a sinister slant-eyed old merchant reputed to trade on Lang. Therefore, he advised the ghouls to seek out Dilathleen, crossing the fields to Nier and the sky and following the river to its mouth. This they at once resolved to do and lost no time in loping off, since the thickening of the dusk promised a full night ahead for travel. And Carter shook the paws of those repulsive beasts, thanking them for their help and sending his gratitude to the beast which was once Pikmin, but could not help sighing with pleasure when they left for a ghoul is a ghoul, and at best an unpleasant companion for man. After that, Carter sought a forest pool and cleansed himself of the mud of nether earth, thereupon reassuming the clothes he had so carefully carried. Welcome back, my creepy kitties. Seems Carter is practically back where he started, at that previously foreboding stone slab in the enchanted forest of the zoos. Never thought I'd say that sentence out loud. At least he is a lead, and he hasn't returned to the waking world, so what fantastical adventures lie in wait for him next? Perhaps I should say catastical. <laughs>
I know. I'm such a tease. Now, without further ado, those other yarns I wanted to unravel. If you weren't aware, I am a part of a YouTube horror collective called The Horror Hive. We're a small but active part of the horror community, and you should totally check out their YouTube channel. My contributions are a retread of what you've heard before, however I do provide some voice work in a number of other projects hosted on their channel that aren't hosted on mine or the podcast. Uh, and there are also other talents on display that you should definitely take a look at. Some excellent writers, narrators, and hosts of other things like video games and horror masks. Anyway, there's a link in the show notes. In addition, I and a number of Horror Hives be as well as a couple of their friends, uh, play a D&D game every Sunday, and sometimes Mondays, uh, and sometimes both. That's right. Nerd alert! Either way, it's a fun take, and... Either way, it's a fun little bit of... Either way, it's quite fun, and the show typically starts at around 4 o'clock to 4.30 p.m. Central Standard Time on Sundays, or 5 o'clock to 5.30 p.m. Central Standard Time on Mondays. Uh, I'm considering, I'm also considering starting a YouTube channel wherein I post Let's Plays and past uh, sessions of the D&D game, as well as whatever else might uh, be of interest to me, but not necessarily in keeping with the theme of horror storytelling. Uh, oh, and, and for the D&D stream, that will be at uh, uh, twitch.com. TV uh, forward slash one mad catter. That's numerical one, by the way. Anyway, uh, in, in other news, for those in the Pacific Northwest, I'll be attending Crypticon during the first weekend of May. So if that's on your to-do list, uh, keep an eye out for my booth. I'll, I'll be the one in the dark. Anywho, I believe that's all I wanted to do. So, if you don't mind, I'll say goodbye to you. Good night, my creepy kitties. Sleep tight, my scary cats. Watch for shadows in the dark cities. And don't you fret the vampire bats. May the universe keep your fears locked behind reality's seams. And of course, my sweet dear. I wish you all pleasant dreams. <laughs> Ha 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 